You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I've had sex in Utah. Have you had sex in Utah? I've had sex in Utah. But it's been a while, long time actually. But if I recall correctly, the sex in Utah was pretty good. I've also had sex with guys who fled Utah and the Mormon church, and that was also pretty good. <laughs> Having sex with Mormons in Utah made me think of that Ben Franklin bit of advice for a friend thinking about taking a mistress. Franklin urged his friend to choose an older woman because they're so grateful. Well, if you're thinking about having gay sex, you might want to choose an ex-Mormon because they're so grateful and committed. It kind of makes sense, stands to reason, when someone has given up a lot to get that dick, when they've walked away from their faith, when they've risked and sometimes succeeded in alienating their families, they're not going to let any bit of that dick go to waste. Like Native Americans on the Great Plains, they're going to use every part of the animal. So I'm not going to share any other details. I will spare you all the mental images. But I did want to share this. I wasn't arrested and prosecuted for fornication while I was in Utah or for sodomy, even though I could have been at the time arrested for both. In all fairness, at least on the fornication front, it's been a while since anyone was prosecuted for fornicating in Utah. It's been decades, actually. But sex between unmarried people is a crime in Utah. Class B misdemeanor with up to $1,000 in fines and six months in jail. Or it was a crime. Fornication was a crime in Utah until late last week when Utah's Republican governor, Gary Herbert, signed the freedom to fuck legislation that had been sitting on his desk for a month. So the next time you're in the Beehive State, don't you let Utah Criminal Code 76-7-103, which stated that any unmarried person who shall voluntarily engage in sexual intercourse with another is guilty of fornication, don't let that stop you from getting with the hottie you met in line for the chairlift because that shit has been repealed. I'd like to thank Utah's political class, dominated as it is by conservative Mormon politicians for repealing this backwards law over the objections of hyper-conservative Mormon politicians and preachers who worried that doing so would, can you guess, send the wrong message to young people. And speaking of young people, we're always supposed to be thinking about the children, but the kind of people who want us to think about the children are thinking very new and very different thoughts about the children after the results of another study found that kids today, well, kids today are doing what people spent decades and hundreds of millions of your tax dollars urging kids to do just a few years ago. They're abstaining. The share of Americans not having sex has reached a record high, the headline in the Washington Post read last week. Subhead, which in this context means that little extra bit of headline, usually in a smaller font, right under the main headline and not what it means in hotels in Utah. Anyway, the subhead read... You can blame young people for this dry spell, data show. All right, so while the U.S. population is aging, and that does account for some of the drop-off in total sexual activity, it can't account for all of it. Nope, turns out that a lot of the same young people who aren't buying diamonds or cars or McMansions, they're not having sex. Fully 28% of men under 30 report not having had even one sexual encounter in the last year, but only 18% of women under 30 report the same. This is a big spike in these numbers since 1989 when they were in their mid-teens and the gap between men and women was a single point or two, not 10 points. Quickly, quick observation, 28% of men under 30 aren't sexually active while only 18% of women under 30 aren't sexually active. So it would appear that many young women are having sex with older men 
or each other or both. Now, to be clear, supermajorities of young people, male and female, are still sexually active. But the spike in sexually unactive young people has a lot of folks out there scratching their heads. Is it the economy? People living at home with their parents? Video games? Unenforced laws still on the books until recently in Utah? Or porn? It's porn. Everybody loves to blame porn. But people who watch porn, men and women both, tend to be more sexually active than people who don't. So maybe it's not porn. This report comes hard on the heels of Kate Julian's cover story in The Atlantic last year that detailed what she dubbed the sex recession. We had her on the show to talk about it. She cited a lot of other research that's been done. I'm not ready to draw any conclusions, and I don't have a pet theory of my own that explains this drop-off. Or, hey, maybe it's all the sex podcasts out there hosted by old people. Maybe that's a turnoff for young people. Or maybe fornicating was just more fun back when it was against the law in Utah and other states. But this is clearly an area that needs more study. I do want to highlight one thing that Elizabeth Nolan Brown at Reason said in reaction to this new study. The past few decades have also seen decreases in teen pregnancies, unintended pregnancies overall, abortions, and HIV infections. So maybe what we're seeing in the data isn't, or maybe what we're seeing in these data aren't, the beginning of the end of sex here. Maybe what we're seeing are fewer people having bad sex, or reckless sex, or risky sex. And that might be a good thing. But yeah, more study is needed. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro-free version of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the magnum version of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. It's twice as long and no ads. Caitlin Bailey from the new organization Decriminalizing Sex Work joins us to talk about, well, you'll never guess. Hey, Dan. I've been with my husband for almost seven years, married for one, and um, I just have a question about our libidos. So we generally want to have sex the same number of times and around the same days. So that's really lucky. My problem is that once we start going, my sexual energy runs out faster. And I feel like I'm just waiting for him to come, waiting for him to finish after only, you know, five, 10 minutes when we used to earlier in our relationships, go and go and go. And I'm not sure what to do. If I'm not in the mood, then I can. We're both game for masturbatory assists. If he's not in the mood, I'm not in the mood. But and if he finishes first, and I'm, he's always good to help me get off. But I just don't know what to do about like when we're having D and B, and I'm just I just stop mentally in the middle. So it sounds like most everything is working. And when there's a disconnect, when you're horny, he's not. He's horny, you're not. You provide each other with. Pleasant, upbeat, friendly, masturbatory assists, not guilt-laden, masturbatory, annoyed assists, and that's good. And the only problem seems to be that sometimes when you guys have PIV and you've finished and he hasn't, you've had your orgasm or your suite of orgasms, you kind of check out and you get a little bored and maybe a little annoyed and you're ready to be done and he ain't ready to be done. If you can be honest with him about this – you can shift from PIV to the masturbatory assist when, you know, you're done. You do identify a dynamic, though, that's interesting. You say that you could go and go and go early in the relationship. Now, when it's PIV, you're good for five, ten minutes tops. And I assume that means that seven years ago, five years ago, four years ago, three years ago, when you guys were doing PIV, you could go and go and go. So let's say that's one, two, three goes Three times as much PIVing, 
that's good for you and fun for you. So instead of five, 10 minutes, that would be 15, 30 minutes. It can help if you think about what, what sex was like early in the relationship. And early in a relationship, it's new. Uh, you're strangers to each other. You're still getting to know each other with your bodies. Things seem kind of risky even if you've established a, a comfort with this person and an intimacy with this person. There's still an unknown quantity and that kind of sense of risk and danger that even comes bundled with someone that you've vetted to the point where you feel comfortable being naked and intimate with them. It doesn't feel like bungee jumping. It feels safe enough. Still, there's risk and danger there. There's, there's mystery there. And that dissipates over time. There's no way to will that back about this person. What you have to do is change the circumstances. You can't change who your husband is, but you can change when and where and how you're fucking your husband. It may be that when you guys have PIV, you're doing it in the same place at roughly the same time on the same surface, that bed, every single time. And you're bored. And you're not bored with each other. You're not even bored with the sex. You're just not as good to go for as long. And I think if you shake up the things that you can shake up, monogamous relationship, you don't want to get divorced and find new partners, but you can change the place. You can change the time. You can change the circumstance. You can change the surfaces on which you have sex. And by changing those circumstances, you can add juice and excitement to the relationship. And then maybe you'll be in for longer than five or ten minutes. You'll be able to go and go and go for longer. But you have to experiment to discover that. So go fuck him at his office. Have him come fuck you at your workplace. Fuck on the roof. Get a ladder and go up on a starry night and fuck outside on the roof. Go to a public sex environment where even if you're not going to touch anybody else, maybe even if you're not going to look at anybody else, you may be observed if you're comfortable with that, if that sounds exciting to you. Some public sex environments have private spaces where you can go in a room and close the door and lock it from the inside and be all by yourselves, but you were doing this incredibly naughty thing. And that kind of not changing partners, but changing the circumstances and the timing and the place and the surfaces where you have sex with your long-term committed partner can restore that sense of risk and danger and experiment and mystery and revive your sex life, can make it compelling again, can make you capable perhaps of going and going and going, but you got to carve out the time to do that and you got to prioritize it. You got to prioritize sex. We live in a sex phobic, sex negative culture. People who prioritize sex sometimes are looked down on, even looked down on themselves. They feel guilty. They feel like dirty sex monsters. And so, you know, long-term loving couples will often wedge sex in here and there where they can in their busy schedules, but it's not something that they schedule. So they'll go to their PTA meetings, they'll go to the movies, they'll go to dinner with friends, and then they'll wedge sex in here or there, around the edges, in the cracks, where they can. And what they don't do, what a lot of couples don't do, is say, here, this is the Saturday night, four-hour block. We're not going to dinner with friends, we're not going to a movie, and then going to try to maybe have sex later when we get home. We're having sex over those four hours. We're going to this place at this time to fuck each other's brains out. And if you prioritize it that way, and prioritize it in a way where you're shaking up again the circumstances under which you have sex, you may find yourself, again, able to go and go and go. Block out the time and prioritize sex. Hi, I have a question about something that happens to me. Whenever I have an orgasm, immediately afterward, I yawn once or twice. Um, I, I don't know why. It's certainly not because I'm bored. But over the years, with partners in particular, sometimes I've 
gotten comments like, oh, did that, did that bore you? Or did, did you not enjoy this, our being together? Uh, so I wondered, is, is this a thing that's, you know, just physiological? Is it common, uncommon? Am I weird? I'm just wondering. And uh, maybe um, other listeners who had similar questions. I feel like I need to get this printed on sheets and pillows. When you come, when a dude comes, when a woman comes, prolactin is released into the body. Dudes have a different reaction, a more intense reaction to prolactin. It's a hormone. And what it does is it makes your erection go away. Also makes you sleepy. Puts you to sleep. Makes you yawn. And you should say that to your sex partners. If you're worried about someone reacting negatively in the moment after you come, if you yawn a couple of times, but you stay in the game, you know, you yawn, you shake it off, you make sure that she enjoyed herself, that she got off at least once, maybe many times, you can stay in the game, but you can say to someone in advance, like, hey, just a, like a heads up, sometimes after I come, I yawn once or twice, doesn't mean I didn't love it, actually means I did love it, I exerted myself, I exhausted myself, I'm spent, blew that load. Here comes the prolactin. There goes the erection. And I might yawn once or twice, but I'm still present and I'm still here and I'm still happy you're here. You can say that to someone before sex. might seem a little awkward to have that conversation before sex. You can certainly say that after sex. If someone who's the product of a shitty non-sex education in America doesn't know this, you can tell them. You can even haul out your phone and Google it for them. Interestingly, Men produce four times as much prolactin after intercourse than they do after masturbation. So there's something about intimacy, something about that connection, something about that exertion that prompts a man really to – or perhaps a man's body to really flood itself with these hormones that make men and other vertebrates sleepy. Hey, Dan. Foreigner calling here. I was jacking off into a hand towel and then I proceeded to – throw the hand towel into the laundry, I mean, into the washing machine. And then I started filling up the washing machine with my kids' clothes. And I stopped and thought, wait a minute, does the cum actually exit the the, the washing machine or does it get evenly spread out in the clothes in the washer? And uh, that made me feel a bit icky. So I just uh, threw the towel away this time and just uh, washed my kids' clothes separate from it. But do you know what happens to the cum in the washing machine? Does it go away or does it just spread out? If it spreads out, isn't it less offensive than the skid marks in your kid's underpants that would spread out as well? Wouldn't you be more worried about all of your clothes coming out covered in kid shit than your kid's clothes coming out glazed with a tiny bit of your semen. No, it all goes away. Your clothes are dunked in water multiple times and then soap is run through them and then the water is drained and there's a spin cycle and then your clothes are re-soaked in fresh water and there's a second spin cycle. No, this is not a problem. This is just the kind of cultural paranoia that is induced by this crazy obsession that so many people have with there having to be some sort of no man's zone, no woman's zone, no envy zone between children and anything and everything sexual, however loose or obscure, non-existent the association might be. Lots of bodily fluids and effluvia and disgusting crap goes into washing machines. And clean clothes come out. You do not have to worry about 
a drop of your semen getting on your kid's clothes in the washing machine. And even worst case scenario, if it did, what the fuck is going to happen? Kid's not going to drop dead. Kid's never going to know. You're never going to know. Maytag is never going to know. This is a non-problem. Please stop thinking about it. The fact that you are thinking about it is actually kind of a little creepy. It's not the washing machine or the cum rag. That's the problem. It's that you would think this could be an issue or there might be some harm in it, even if it were, which it isn't. Hi, Dan. I'm in my mid-20s and I live on the West Coast. I just came out as queer a couple months ago and I've learned that I definitely prefer women. Usually when men hit on me, I have no problem saying, I'm only dating women, don't waste your drink money, I'm not interested, and then they'll usually just leave me alone. I'm now seeing this girl that I really like and she's not into guys at all. She's totally a lesbian. Um, We are both very feminine and we've been hit on by men every time we've been out together. She seems unbothered by this and usually doesn't interrupt them. Just says, no thanks, but the guys never take the hint. I think it's annoying that we keep getting interrupted and sometimes I'll tell them we're here together so we're not interested, but they either don't believe us or they'll start trying even harder. We've even had gross stuff like, oh yeah, make out then. So I'm getting really over it. Um, how can I grace, gracefully but believably tell these men to fuck off because I don't like dick anymore? Maybe if any queer women have feedback, that would be much appreciated. Thank you. Tossing your call out there. And of course, welcoming the feedback of other queer women who might be able to offer you strategies for deflecting this kind of malattention. I got to say, though, I want to ask you where you're going. I know that men, shitty men, hit on women wherever they are. Street corners, buses, subways, workplaces, classrooms. Everywhere women go, there are sometimes shitty men hitting on them. But the kinds of places where men approach women and offer to buy them drinks are usually pickup joints, not subway cars. And so if you and your girlfriend, because you want to, go hang out in a nightclub that's mixed, that's queer and straight, are going to be approached by some men who can't tell just by looking at you that you are together. And so you're going to have to deflect this kind of male attention, people offering to buy you drinks. When you tell someone to fuck off and go away, and that you aren't interested and you aren't looking and you don't have to be open to going home with or accepting a drink from anybody just because you're in that kind of a space where that is the expectation You shouldn't be shocked, though, when you get that kind of attention in that kind of a space. Guys who won't take no for an answer, guys who won't go away, guys who tell you to make out are assholes. And if you go to a place that's well run, you should be able to say something to a bartender or a doorman and get that guy bounced. But if you're in a pickup joint, you know, we need these spaces in the world. You know, if we want people not to be hitting on each other on buses, on subways, in classrooms, at workplaces. We need these spaces that when we enter them, we say, while I am here for this time, you may approach me. A lot of those spaces are virtual. Tinder, Grindr, OkCupid, Too Many Fish, Christian Mingle, Farmers Only. A lot of those spaces are virtual. We, by entering them, invite a pass, invite attention. Some of them are IRL. And the IRL ones, not subways, not schools, not buses, not whatever, are nightclubs, certain kinds of bars and clubs, and we know what those bars and clubs are like. It's like defining pornography. You know it when you see it. You know what that kind of club or bar is when you choose to enter it or when you see it. And so I don't want to minimize the annoyance of the guys who won't fuck off or the guys who ask you and your girlfriend to perform bi or lesbian for them. That's assholery and obnoxious and fuck those guys. 
But I got to say, you can't be upset if you go to the kind of place where people are picking each other up, including opposite sex types. You can't complain about being approached by people who might want to initiate a conversation, offer to buy you a drink. That's the social norm in that space. Do you want to be subjected to that kind of attention? Then maybe you should go to some other bars and clubs or different places where that's not the norm or the expectation, where it isn't one of those spaces that when we enter them, we are saying, you may approach me. Hi, Dan. I am a 24-year-old cisgendered uh, straight female living in a metropolitan area. My question is about the ethics of exploring sexuality without really making people feel like objects or like experiments. I have always identified as straight, but recently I have realized that in a few different scenarios, I have been attracted to just a masculine energy in general, including lesbian females who lean more butch or people who are non-binary but lean more into the masculine realm. I'm asking what the ethics are about approaching exploring this interest and this attraction without making people that I am exploring that with feel as though they are just an experiment. I would never want to make somebody feel like that, um, especially if those people are very comfortable in their sexuality and they tend to engage more in people that are already very comfortable in how they identify. I would really love to be open and explore these options, but I also really don't want to ever make anyone feel uncomfortable. And I would really love your advice on how to navigate this. There's a lot of people out there who are interested in the kind of sexual experimentation and sexual exploration that, that you're talking about, who have otherwise identified as straight and then suddenly realized that perhaps there's more going on for them. And they're attracted to more and different kinds of people than they thought they were. And if they're conscientious, they never want to make someone feel like they're an experiment. And so they will often attempt to pass themselves off as something that they're not, as queer or as more experienced than they are. And they will misrepresent themselves. They'll go to a lesbian bar, a lesbian club, a lesbian night or a queer night, and they will try to perform queerness. They'll try to pass. And it's that misrepresentation that can make someone who winds up going home with you feel lied to and feel used. So your only path here, if you want to avoid making someone feel like your experiment, is to seek out people who want to be your experiment, who are excited about being the person who is the first butch queer lesbian that gets to eat your previously straight-identified pussy. And those women are out there. There's a piece of The Guardian, major publication, Why Chasing Straight Women Still Thrills Me. They take ages to do their rubbish in bed, and then they go straight back to their boyfriends. But Stacey Ann Chin still can't resist turning a straight woman's head. There are women out there who want what you're offering, who are attracted to your particular type, your circumstance, the moment of life that you're in, this exploration and self-discovery journey that you're about to go on, there are women out there, butch women, who would love to fuck you. Be who you are. Be honest about who you are. You will attract those women. Be honest about who you are, and you will repel women who don't want to be your first, women who don't want to be your experiment, women who don't want to fuck you for a month and then see you go back to your boyfriend and then you don't have to worry about landing in bed with someone who's going to be angry at you 
because you didn't misrepresent yourself, because you didn't lie, because you didn't try to pass yourself off as something or someone you're not? I have a two-part question. I am a heterosexual female, and I've been married for over five years. My husband has a huge wish to have a threesome, and I have no interest in taking part. So I thought I would let him um, do this on his own if he found two women. So um, another issue is that we do have herpes, so I think it would be so messy, and we could just like use protection, not use protection, use protection, not use protection. So it would just be easier if he just did it on his own anyways. Um, what are your thoughts on that, for one? And for two, if um, we're in a monogamous relationship, but we want to contemplate just trying out openness, what do you think the first steps are and looking into it and having those discussions and figuring out what works? Start with your second question. The first step towards openness is a conversation, and you guys are having that conversation. You have taken the first step. You can do a little reading if you want to. I always recommend Open by Tristan Taramino. It's a terrific book for couples who have been monogamous up to now and are thinking about perhaps opening their relationship. But you're already doing what I would tell someone to do as a first step. The first step isn't a three-way with two other people who aren't your partner. The first step is a long, involved conversation with your partner about openness, which comes in many forms. You know, open can be polyamory. There are different kinds of polyamory. You know, polyamory is a concurrent committed romantic relationship or an openness to concurrent committed romantic relationships. Some people use poly and open and conflate poly and open as if they are and mean the same thing and they don't mean the same thing and they aren't the same thing. And even openness, there's a spectrum you know, is it a DADT, don't ask, don't tell open relationship? Is it every once in a while? Do you have a separate continence or time zone rule? Is it a no friends and no uh, connections? Nobody you see more than once, not in our bed, not in our house. People have all sorts of different rules for open relationships. And I can't assign you and your husband rules. You guys have to work out together what you're comfortable with and what works for you now. And that's a conversation in an open relationship that really never stops. People are constantly revisiting their rules, renegotiating their rules, loosening their rules. And the loosening of the rules should never be just unspoken or by default. Those should always be active, engaged, ongoing, consented to moves, not just, oh, by the way, I'm not using condoms with my other partners now. See ya. That's not how you do it. But I don't need to tell you all that because you're already having those conversations. Go get open by Tristan Taramina and read it. As for the three-way, like I said, I think a three-way with two other people is a dive into the deep end of the pool of openness. If you guys have been monogamous for the last five years, how herpes factors in? Well, your husband will need to disclose that to his partners. You described a scenario where you weren't interested in having a three-way with your husband or another woman because he would have to go back and forth between using protection with that other person and not using protection with you, his committed fluid bonded partner who also has herpes. But that's true of a lot of three ways where if it's a three way involving a couple and a third, that the couple may not use protection and will use protection with the third. That's not uncommon. So it's not necessarily the barrier you might think it is to a three way. If you're interested in a three way, if you're not though, Great. You can give your husband permission to have that experience with some other women at some other point way, way, way down the road because what you'll learn when you read open and if you do other reading about moving into ethical non-monogamy is you're going to want to take baby steps and assess how you feel 
while you take those baby steps, maybe the first time he's with somebody else, there's no PIV, or maybe the first time you guys think about any sort of erotic contact with others, it's just flirting in a bar or grinding on a dance floor and you can see him and he can see you and you can see what kind of emotions your partner being with someone else dredges up before your partner has had intercourse with someone else. Because sometimes what people discover when they move toward ethical non-monogamy or they explore openness is that it isn't for them. And better to discover that before there's been intercourse or something that feels really hugely emotionally significant than after. Hi, Dan, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I am a mostly hetero, misgendered female in my late 20s. I've recently started hooking up with a guy who I really like. During our last encounter, I asked him what he was into sexually, and he made a clear distinction between lovemaking and kink play and stated that he doesn't want to involve me in his kink. I'm worried that his intent to limit that aspect of our sex life could indicate a case of Madonna whore complex. I want to keep seeing this guy and am interested in exploring kink with him, but I also want to help him understand that lovemaking and kink can overlap with each other and that I don't want him to shut me out. What is my best approach here? I wouldn't lump everyone who makes the separation your partner makes between vanilla and kink into the Madonna whore column, Madonna whore pile. I wouldn't chuck him into there. There are some people who have some kinks that they find easier to to get into if the person that they're exploring these kinks with is only the kink, is only that fantasy figure, is only that master that they've endowed with this kind of power through power exchange or that slave from whom they've taken power in negotiated power exchange. And knowing all the other details of that person's life or having sincere feelings of affection for that person, I think in any sort of power exchange relationship, there may be feelings of gratitude, admiration, attraction. But some people find in that kink space that affection makes it difficult to be, you know, the mean glowering master in the role play scenario or the like, you know, submissive bootlicking sub and it makes it hard for them to enter that. And so they just, they they separate those things. If there are certain sex acts and a kind of sexual pleasure that they enjoy with a committed partner in the context of committed relationship. And then there are these kinks that they explore with others. They don't have that same connection to that intimacy because the intimacy acts as kind of a circuit breaker for their kinks. And I don't think that's the same thing as Madonna whore. There are things I will do, with people that I respect and love, very limited things, and then people I don't care about, people I look down on, people I think of as whores, I will do these disgusting things with them. That's all kinds of fucked up. The kinky person who is self-aware and self-actualized enough to know what works for them in different kinds of relationships, in the context of different kinds of relationships, that's not necessarily fucked up. If it's expressed in a healthy and consider it, and even in the context of the kink connection, a loving way, just not a deeply connected, intimate way. So you need to talk to your partner about what his kinks are and what are the reasons that he wants to reserve these certain kinks and the exploration of them for partners that he isn't intimate with in the same way he would be with you. And if you're interested in exploring those things, some people successfully make the leap. Some people who thought these things were separate, fine, and with a particular person in a relationship, if that person wants it, they find themselves able, once asked and challenged, to incorporate more kink into their loving, committed relationship. But some people can't. And I don't think that it's a failure on their part, morally, sexually, ethically, romantically, intimately, 
It's just some people have sexual interests. Some people have desires that have to be contained in a vessel where there is some distance and separation. That's not an excuse to use people. It's not an excuse to Madonna whore people. You know, in the Madonna whore situation, often Madonna's up on a pedestal where there is no sex. There's no sexual anything, no vanilla at all because sex is dirty and disgusting and you do that with people you think are dirty and disgusting. If he isn't dividing the world up in that way, he may not have a problem or may not have had a problem until you came along because you would like both. And that's something you guys are going to have to talk about and negotiate and see if you can be incorporated into his kinks or not. And if you can't, well, then you're in deal breaker or price of admission territory and you have to make a decision about whether you want to remain in this relationship. Hi, Dan. I'm a heterosexual woman who's been dating a terrific 36-year-old guy for the last few months. He has a medical condition that requires him to take a medication whose side effect is ED. He's stopped getting nightly and morning erections, and he usually can't get or keep an erection when we have sex. His doctor has checked his testosterone level, and it's normal. He needs to stay on this medication for a year, and it's been four months so far. We've talked it through, and we both agree that things would be pretty great if the sex were normal. We also realize that we've arrived at this heavy place too early in our relationship, when we should really just be enjoying getting to know each other. I've become very insecure sexually, which is not normal for me. I know he's frustrated, and I don't want to put pressure on him to perform and make it even worse. We're both very sexual people, and sex has always been a huge part of relationships for both of us. Neither of us knows how to have a relationship without sex. Dan, I've listened to your advice about all the things you can do with a limp dick, but his dick is such a huge part of his identity that limp dick activities are just not a long-term solution. So a couple of weeks ago, I realized that I had so much anxiety every time I got into bed that I couldn't let things continue as they were. So I told him I needed a break from sex. We're both super affectionate and enjoy sleeping together, so we cuddle and we kiss, but that's it. And now I'm afraid that pulling back from him sexually was a huge mistake. Taking sex off the menu for a couple of weeks was what I needed to feel comfortable in bed with him again. But I'm afraid he's begun to stop seeing me as a sexual creature. Now I just want to fuck him so badly, but I don't think he wants me anymore. We seem to be falling into a friendship. He's even told me that maybe we won't even want to fuck by the time he's able to. He's pulling away from me, and I'm trying to give him space in the hopes that we can figure out how to get through this period and still have a chance at a relationship. Are we doomed? I'm sad, and I'm lost. Please help, Dan. What are the limp dick activities that don't work for you? So, in general, um, he gets a great amount of pleasure out of making me calm. And, you know, he can do that by going down on me or with sex toys. Um, And that's all great, but the sex feels totally one-sided most of the time Mm -hmm. because there's not really anything I can do to make him hard, and then he'll get frustrated because he can't get hard, as he says, my dick doesn't work. And then inexplicably, he does get hard, but there's no telling when that's going to happen or how long it's going to last. 
so I never know what to do. This is a temporary problem. You said he's on a certain medication. He needs to be on it for a year, and you're four months in, right? So there's a light at the end of the tunnel. It's a little bit like pregnancy. Eventually, he's going to like give birth to a hard cock again, and you're going to get past this medication-induced problem, erectile dysfunction, temporary medication-induced. So I don't understand why you're in such despair and why you feel so (sighs) negated by this thing that he's not doing intentionally, not that anybody has ED intentionally. Of course not. No, of course not. Temporary. I think the reason, and we've talked about this, is because this is a brand new relationship. Mm -hmm. And we're dealing with something that is really, really hard for him to deal with and is therefore causing me anxiety um, at a time when we shouldn't, when we don't know each other well enough, we're not far enough into the relationship to say, okay, this is just a bump in the road. Why aren't you far enough into the relationship to say this is just a bump in the road? Even if you'd met 10 minutes ago, knowing that this is induced by the medication, it's not a referendum his dick is holding on your attractiveness, and knowing that it's going to stop because he's going to go off these meds. I actually am having a hard time wrapping my head around how come you guys both can't talk yourself off these ledges. It seems like you're mm-hmm. unhappy because you said, you know, we do these things, these non-hard dick related other activities, but then you said we don't have sex or the sex isn't good, but he makes you come, but then he gets anxious because he can't come. You get anxious because you can't do anything for him that you can't reciprocate. And it just feels like you guys are opting into anxiety here that you could easily opt out of. Really? Just by saying right now, like whether your dick gets hard or not is irrelevant. Right now we're going to do these, you know, dick irrelevant activities that we enjoy. We're going to use toys. We're going to do oral. If your dick shows up, if you get hard, we'll jump on it. If it doesn't, we'll still have fun. And, you know, eight, nine months from now, if we haven't both, you know, freaked out to such an extent that now you're going to have a psychological problem and not just a physiological problem, because, you know, if you can get in a guy's head about his erections, erections, if you're a long-term listener, you probably heard me say this, erections a little bit yeah. like Tinkerbell, you got to believe. And mm-hmm. the more you guys freak out over this, the less he's going to believe in his dick after he goes off his meds and the likelier the problem is to persist then. And you just need to say, okay, for now, you know, I, I have letters in my inbox from people who took my advice to take PIV off the menu for three months or six months, and it vastly improved their sex life because they just weren't defaulting to PIV, and they were were playful, and they were trying other things and using toys and doing oral and mutual masturbation, and it helped improve their sex lives. And it seems like you guys can build out a really great and varied sex life right now before you reintroduce PIV when the time comes. That right. It can be so, yeah, I mean, so I I did take it off the table. I took your advice, and I was greatly relieved. Um, but he had a and time. well, it's been it's been you know a few weeks, and um, he's had enough of that. <laughs> <laughs> he really wants to get hard and fuck you, right? <laughs> yes. And actually, that happened last night. Oh, well, okay. So it happens sometimes? Sometimes it happens. Sometimes it happens. And I guarantee you, you know know why it happened last night? Because it was off the menu. Exactly. And so it sounds like you're doing everything right. The only thing you both need to stop doing is wringing your hands. 
You're going to give yourself mm. a complex, you're going to give him a complex, and you're going to give your relationship, which is the thing you two are creating together, kind of a separate entity, also a complex. Just say, okay. we're going to enjoy each other, we're going to be intimate, we're going to be physical, we're going to connect. I'm going to come, maybe you'll come, maybe you won't, but Yahtzee if you do, and there's a light at the end of this tunnel where you're going to be off these meds again, and this won't be such a problem. But, you know, after you get out of that tunnel, you're going to want to keep doing oral and toys and mutual masturbation and all these other things in the mix with PIV. Right. Because it makes for a much better sex life. You know, the broader your definition of sex, particularly in a long-term relationship, if that's what you guys are helping to move toward, uh, the more sex you're going to have in that long-term relationship. Right. Thank you for telling me all this. I needed to hear this. Well, I, I, I'm glad you called and I'm glad I was able to do this download for you. And I, I wish I could like talk to him too and, and give him a little shake. You need to make sure that he knows that you don't see him as any less of a fun sex partner, any less of a person you want to be with, any less of a man right now. Even if the ED was permanent, even if it wasn't temporarily induced, like a man is in his dick. And when we tell men they are their dicks and their dicks fail, boy, do they get more toxic than men are inclined to be already by their socialization. And we don't want to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. How hard is his tongue? Okay. How hard are his fingers? How hard are his forearms? How hard are the toys? If he has it in him, there are, you know, that, you know, crotch to crotch grind fucking, I understand it's a emotional significance for a lot of people. And if a guy can handle it, who has some ED problems, uh, you know, borrow a page from the lesbians, Borrow a page from guys who've locked their dicks up in chastity willingly and strap on a dildo every once in a while. And you can have that face-to-face -face contact and you can have that fully filled up feeling with a toy. Right. Okay. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. We will. And good luck. And don't walk away from this relationship because the sex is not where it, you know it will be when he gets off these meds. Right. Okay. Thanks, Dan. Sure thing. Hi, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old straight female. I grew up in a very dysfunctional household where mental illness runs in our family. Once when I was 15 and my brother was eight, we tongue-kissed. I don't remember who initiated it, but I know it just kind of happened. It's resurfaced back into my memory recently, and I can't stop thinking about it. I feel so guilty, disgusted, and ashamed because of the age difference and especially because I should have known better since I was molested for years as a child. I don't speak to him or any of my immediate family now for unrelated reasons, so I'm not sure if he even remembers, but I feel like a monster and can't even bring this up to my therapist. Is it common for siblings to experiment? How can I ever forgive myself or move past this? Sexual experimentation between siblings is not that uncommon. What you describe, though, 15-year-old, tongue-kissing an 8-year-old, I think falls into the category of sexual exploitation. Uh, and if it had escalated, sexual abuse. And it may have been experienced by your younger sibling as sexual abuse. You have to recognize, though, that it existed in the context of a hyper-dysfunctional family and that you had been a victim yourself of sexual abuse and violation. And you got to give yourself 
a little bit of, of not a break. You want to hold yourself accountable and you want to wrestle with what happened and you want to really process it. And you're not going to be able to do that in a call to a sex advice podcast. You're really going to have to do that in a long extended series of conversations with your therapist. You need to unburden yourself. You are not a monster. You are a victim, as is often the case with young children who are sexually abused in their families. You had very poor boundaries. You had poor impulse control. And you did to others in your familial orbit as you had been done to. Not as severely, but yeah, you're going to continue to feel terrible about this. You're going to continue to walk with this stone on your shoe until you unburden yourself with someone who can not exonerate you, but help you put it into its proper context and help you understand it. And you can forgive yourself while also holding yourself accountable. And you can forgive yourself while also doing everything that you can to, to break that cycle of abuse that you were a part of in your own family. And the way you do that is with the help of a good therapist. So I would encourage you, strongly encourage you to open up to your therapist about this. It is not as uncommon as you think. You are a victim and a victimizer, which is also very common. And you need help not to gain absolution, but so that you can forgive yourself. And it is possible to forgive yourself without absolving yourself. And a therapist can help you see that. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to have a conversation with Caitlin Bailey. She's the director of communications for a new organization just launched called Decriminalize Sex Worker DSW. Hey, Caitlin, how are you? I am great. Thank you so much for chatting. Uh, it's easy to tell from the name of your organization, Decriminalize Sex Work, what your mission is. But can you lay it out for people who haven't heard of you yet? Oh, sure. Absolutely. We want to end the prohibition of prostitution in the United States. And to do that, we're pursuing a state-by-state -state strategy, but we're a national organization and we're partnering with uh, local sex worker rights organizations to help them uh, pursue their legislative goals. For example, we're working with Swap Behind Bars in Florida to help combat this terrible prostitution registry bill. We're working with Coyote Rhode Island to try to get a study commission and eventually decrim in Rhode Island. And we're working with uh, Swap New Hampshire in New Hampshire to do the same thing. Now, the marriage equality movement employed a state-by-state -state strategy, but it's a little different here. I recently learned, actually I learned on a panel at South by Southwest, which is where you and I met, that there isn't a federal law prohibiting prostitution. The state-by-state -state strategy on marriage equality was to set up and tee up challenges to the Defense of Marriage Act, which made same-sex marriage illegal at the federal level. Um, but a state-by-state -state strategy here, there is no federal law against prostitution. It's only state law against prostitution. That's true. That, uh, yeah, all of the criminal penalties against prostitution are, are state by state and in some cases city by city. Um, it's a real patchwork system of prohibition. Now, there is the Mann Act, right, which has historically uh, actually mostly been used against um, interracial couples um, about transporting people across state lines or transporting women across state lines for, quote unquote, immoral purposes. And then, of course, the, the recent terrible legislation, uh, SESTA-FOSTA, which has created massive censorship of sexual content on the Internet, which is you know, sort of what kicked us into gear and what motivated our funders uh, to start this initiative. But that's, those aren't criminal penalties. That's just 
censorship on the internet. Now, now SESTA FOSTA has made it really difficult for sex workers to organize online or really even to speak online. Is SESTA FOSTA making it harder yeah. for you guys to organize? For decriminalized sex work to organize? Yeah, actually, our, our Twitter account was suspended without explanation. Um, and so we, you know, we're not quite sure what the what the root cause of that was. Uh, you know, we, we started another one and sort of hope that that doesn't get um, suspended. But it's, uh, I know that a lot of folks have had their organizing stuff censored, were, were prepared to fight that. Um, but beyond having our Twitter account um, you know, permanently suspended. It hasn't. It hasn't directly impacted our organizing efforts. But also, we aren't providing direct services to sex workers. So the real harm is actually happening closer on the ground with sort of a, a gag order mm-hmm. on um, people that provide social services or people that provide direct services to people engaged in sex work. Uh, but because we're lobbying, we have more First Amendment protections. So quickly, we, we've talked about decriminalizing sex work on this show for years. But for new listeners, I hear mm-hmm. from people all the time who only just started listening to the show. For, for longtime listeners, I apologize. <laughs> but for new listeners, will you give the elevator pitch for decriminalizing sex work? Just the, like, the best 60-second or 90-second pitch for why sex work should not be against the law, why women and men who engage in consensual sex work should not be thrown into jail. Our goal is to stop the arrest. We want to end the practice of using the police state to intrude into people's private spaces, whether it's their bedroom or whether it's a massage parlor, to incarcerate people for engaging in a, a kind of sex that the state disapproves of. We know that arresting doesn't lead to any positive outcomes, no matter what your goal is. Wait, wait, I, I want to stop right there. I want to emphasize that. Sure. I, I really <laughs> want to you know, get out my you know, imaginary RL highlighter and highlight what you just said. <laughs> arresting people that you want to save. Like there's a lot of people out there who think prostitution should be illegal yes. because some people are doing it uh, under duress or they're being harmed by doing it, even if they believe themselves to be doing it consensually. And so to protect them from themselves or to s- rescue them, the best thing that we yes. could possibly do for them is throw them into jail and give them a criminal record to make it hard for them to get housing, make it harder for them to get other jobs. And even if you yep. think that people shouldn't be doing sex work, arresting people for it, you know, it's illegal now and people do it. Yes. It doesn't stop people from doing it. It just harms the people who get caught doing it. So you can't claim no. to want to save people doing prostitution while supporting their incarceration. No, what we call it is pimping by the state. So you, you arrest somebody, you saddle them with a, with a fine and a legal record, you make them more vulnerable to exploitation, and then you force them to pay, to pay the state to money. And then by, because you've made it more difficult for them to get a job, they, of course, either go back onto the street or go back to the brothel, go back to however it was that they were working in order to raise money to pay for these court fines, uh, which is ludicrous. And so it's, uh, it's a really insidious system that does the opposite mm-hmm. of what it says. And I think that that is true of so much of this like anti-trafficking hysteria that we're dealing with, right? Like the, the passage of SESTA-FOSTA was supposed to save victims of trafficking. And all it did was uh, exacerbate all of, the, all of the vulnerabilities, all of the violence, all of the, the problems in the sex industry. And it did that by driving sex workers back onto the streets because you p- people who are able to market themselves or put up ads online, screen clients, share information with each other mm-hmm. about dangerous clients. All of that is impossible now. And so women and men who are doing sex work 
maybe because it's the only thing they can do, which is a kind of economic coercion that we don't like to talk about. Some people are mm-hmm. trafficked by capitalism. Um, they were yep. doing it because they had no choice, are still <laughs> doing it, but they're doing it under much more dangerous circumstances now because they are being forced back onto the streets or they're being forced to work with pimps again that they could avoid in the past by having their own website or having their own um, ads up uh, on message boards that have all been pulled down. Yeah, we have one of the leading anti-trafficking experts um, on our staff. Crystal's boss is is leading our efforts in New Hampshire. We work closely together and she can say definitively the majority of her clients for the past 15 years have been victims of trafficking criminalization does not help her clients. It only makes them more vulnerable because they're afraid of the police. Because if if you look at what happened in Florida with that, you know, quote unquote rescue operation that caught uh, Robert Kraft uh, paying for the crime of paying for a handjob. Donald Trump's football team owning buddy. Owner of the the Patriots um, and also a member of the patriarchy. But (laughs) He, uh, you know, he's going to get off scot-free, but all eight of the women that were supposedly rescued are currently sitting in jail facing prostitution charges if they haven't already been deported. These are not rescue operations. These are these are onerous burdens on vulnerable people. The criminal justice system is not set up as a social service network. We need to stop pretending that the police or persecution uh, or punitive measures are the answers to behaviors that we don't like. We know that prohibition doesn't work. We saw the the terrible failure of that with alcohol. We need to learn the same the same lesson with the oldest profession. The state can't just prohibit behavior that it wants to discourage. A lot of people who oppose decriminalization of sex work accuse people who engage in consensual sex work or advocate for consensual sex work of being in denial about the existence of people who have been trafficked, people who have been coerced, who are not doing sex mm-hmm. work of their own free will. Can you address that subject? You can't. You certainly can't say that about our organization. Uh, you know, Melissa Beardo and Crystal Boss, their primary clients are victims of trafficking. Uh, Melissa Brudeau is our uh, general counsel, and she has worked for her entire career to try to reduce the burden of criminalization on her trafficked clients. So one of her main jobs is getting uh, conviction vacatures so that people who have been trafficked in the sex industry that have been uh, you know, charged and convicted of prostitution can get that expunged from their records so that they can do other work. So it's, it, it's interesting to me, like, there are absolutely victims of trafficking and victims of exploitation across all markets. Most victims of trafficking are trafficked into legal uh, labor, like agriculture or domestic work or you know nail salons um, or hotels. Uh, the hospitality industry employs lots of um, exploited and trafficked labor. But arresting those or threatening those victims with arrest or deportation is never a way to alleviate their suffering if they are in an exploitative situation. And nobody talks about doing that to someone who's been trafficked and is under duress or has been coerced <laughs> into working in the back of a, 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 a restaurant. Yeah, There's no like arrest that person <laughs> and, right. and send them and to jail because they're, you know, shucking oysters. Mm-hmm. It's they're giving hand jobs. So they have to be arrested and sent to jail. And that's how we help that person who is giving hand jobs under duress by arresting them and throwing them in jail. Right. And, and and that's what just drives me crazy about people who oppose decriminalization of sex work. And they always frame it as they want to help. They want to save these women, that there are people out there who are doing yes. this, who are being traumatized by it. And that is true. But this is not how you help them. 
No, absolutely. And it, it, I think it all comes from this almost religious belief that there is something detrimental about and uniquely uh, harmful about engaging in sex, right? We don't talk about protecting uh, coal miners from being uh, coerced into doing a job that's terrible for their body, right? We don't talk about uh, you know, rescuing people that work in nail salons from uh, inhaling toxic chemicals that have a, a you know a, a terrible effect on their their whole their immune system and their body. But we pretend that there's something about any kind of sex act, including um, hand jobs with condoms, that is just so traumatizing and so overwhelming that nobody would nobody would choose to engage in that work. And as you know, as an out sex worker. Myself, I find it incredibly dehumanizing, really, for people to deny my experience and impose their own narrative. You know, sex work, it's the oldest profession. It's always been all kinds of things, all kinds of people who are doing it for all kinds of reasons and having all kinds of feelings about it. Putting people in cages doesn't help anyone in that situation, no matter why they're there or what their feelings about so it are. So tell people out there who might want to get involved, who might want to learn more about your organization, where they can hook up with Decriminalize Sex Work. Absolutely. You should visit our website, uh, decriminalizesex.work. Uh, you should join our email list. If you live in Rhode Island, New Hampshire, or Florida, we have active campaigns that we would love to get you involved in. If you live outside of their states, we are coming to you soon. We need to uh, set a national example and create some model legislation in New Hampshire or Rhode Island before we move on to other states. Um, our big fear, actually, is the, the trap of legalization or protective regulations that end up creating kind of a dystopian nightmare uh, future that nobody wants, right? We don't we don't want to nationalize the Nevada uh, model. We don't want a bunch of brothel owners forcing people into exploitative work workplaces. That's not what we want. We just want to stop the arrest. And, and quickly before we let you go, a few years ago, I said riffing on Andy Warhol uh, that in the future, everyone will have a podcast for 15 episodes. At least uh, you have a podcast. Everybody <laughs> has a podcast these days. Yours is called The <laughs> Oldest Profession Podcast. Tell us about it. Sure. Every episode, we tell the story of a different sex worker from history. I've listened to a few episodes. It's really good. Uh, and you do this deep dive on people who've been overlooked by history, who you know courtesans, who had fascinating lives. And then you mm -hmm. tie it to you know contemporary uh, issues, conflicts, uh, cultural mores. Mm -hmm. it, it's really a terrific show. And I think people should check it out. Oh, thank you so much for, for saying so. I'm, I'm certainly very proud of the show. And I think it's it's so important when we're talking about legislative efforts, there's so much misinformation. There are so many old tropes um, about what it means to be a sex worker that understanding our history and understanding that we have always been an integral part of uh, many different kinds of societies in many different times is really important uh, when, when pushing forward on uh, legislation to uh, keep all of us more free. One, one more point that I, I just want to add, as a historically-minded person, I will tell you that Crackdowns on sex workers, crackdowns on prostitution has almost always inevitably led to a crackdown on the freedom of movement and freedom of expression for women. And we're starting to see that now. I think Sesta Fosta was the beginning of that, but United Airlines, Marriott Hotels, lots of other organizations are investing millions of dollars in training their employees on how to spot, quote unquote, victims of trafficking. And they almost always mean sex workers, which is often interpreted as women traveling alone. 
And so I think that we are we are starting to see the beginning rumbles of some very dangerous instincts to crack down on women as a justification for cracking down on whores. It's all feeling very Margaret Atwoody out there. Yes. <laughs> Caitlin Bailey, Director of Communications for the new organization, look him up online, Decriminalize Sex Work, and host of the really terrific and informative and entertaining podcast, The Oldest Profession Podcast. Thank you for jumping on the phone. We're going to call you again and have you back. Uh, great. Thank you. Hi, I am a 22-year-old cisgender bisexual girl. Um, I've been in a relationship with my boyfriend for the past year and a half, and I mean, it's been really, really great. We have amazing sex, and we've had amazing sex for the past three years that we've known each other before we started dating. I'm just a little bit interested in how to make our sex life a little more interesting. I mean, we definitely aren't super vanilla, and we've talked about maybe starting to use like ties and everything. And he's expressed the interest in role playing, which I'm not really entirely sure if I'm into primarily only because I'm an actor. So a lot of my day to day work has to do with like acting. And I feel like it's a little kind of counterintuitive because it feels like I should be into it. And I'm not, not like, I'm not opposed to it, but I definitely would like some, I guess maybe general advice of, where to start with role playing and maybe not like jumping into being like a sexy teacher or disciplining my student. That just seems a little extra. Um, so yeah, maybe any kind of role playing advice for a fellow actor would be awesome. Of all the kinks in the world that I can wrap my head around and I have wrapped my head and other appendages around so many role playing is one I just can't quite manage. I know there are people out there who can do it, who can, play cops and robbers who can play drill sergeant and new recruit who can play sexy teacher and misbehaving student. But I can't act. That's what I learned when I went to acting school. I really can't act and feel silly and self-conscious when I'm acting. I remember a formative sexual experience many, many years ago that was kind of kinky. And I said, so are we supposed to be like drill sergeant and captain? And, <laughs> God bless him. He said, no, we're just two perverts. Let's just be who we are. And that was actually very liberating and very freeing because I didn't have to do what I was doing and then add a layer of pretense on top of what I was doing and pretend to be Godzilla or whatever the fuck. That said, there are a lot of sexual interests and fantasies that can only be realized through role play. There are some fantasies that have to remain fantasies for practical reasons. Go to example, if you're into centaurs, you're going to have to play let's pretend because there aren't no centaurs. If you're into something that it would be morally outrageous or harmful to another human being, that there's no consensual way in which to indulge this kink, yeah, that's going to be role play if you don't want to go to jail or be a monstrous asshole. All that said, how do you get into it? Well, you're the actor. I don't know. Read Uta Hagen's The Actor Prepares and just pretend it's about sex instead of about the theater and throw yourself into that part. But one of the things I learned or watched other people who could act learn in acting school is that the closer you can get to it, the more interior connection you can find to a part, the easier it is to play it. It comes from a more natural place and you want to find your personal connection to that role. And so whatever it is that your partner is asking you to do in role play land, approach it like a character. Find your personal connection to it. And, and, and then because it's improv, make the expression authentic to yourself, which, you know, in BDSM land means you don't have to be the snarling dom. You can be yourself just in charge. Maduri, who's a terrific sex educator uh, and kink educator, we've had her on the show. 
She does uh, Fort Femme, which are courses for women who want to explore becoming dominant or finding their inner dominant. And she has said that the most important question in, in a scene that you're in control of as a dominant is, what do I want right now? And that's not a question you ask your partner. That's a question you ask yourself. What do I want right now? It has to, whatever your wants are, you know, be from that pre-approved and pre-negotiated list of mutual interests, but you get to drive the scene after that. So I would encourage you those first few times, be yourself, maybe with some added character traits, and then ask yourself, as Maduri encourages women who are exploring role play and exploring dominance to do, ask yourself, what is it that you want? Not just what does your partner want? Hi, Dan and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I am a mid-twenties trans girl on hormones, no surgery yet, but coming somewhat soon. Um, I work as a sex worker. Well, I'm an escort, whatever. And um, I have a boyfriend and his (laughs) parents hate me. They don't know that I escort, but they hate everything else about me. And I just want to know, how long do I wait for them to figure out whether I'm good enough for their son? Like, how long do I spend waiting for them to decide? I guess she's good enough. Like, I'm not a bad person. I have escort because it helps me make money for the job I'm trying to, the career I'm trying to create. Um, You know, he lives off of his parents. So, like, he works for them. and, And so, you know, we both have our ways in which we make our money and make our careers happen. I don't know why I'm I'm so vilified in this situation, but I just want to know, like, in your opinion, how long does a trans girl wait for her boyfriend's parents to decide she's not Phil? How long are you willing to wait? And while you wait, how is your boyfriend treating you? Is he prioritizing you? Is he working on his parents? Is he your advocate? Are you his partner? You know, when you take a partner, you kind of create a new family. And sometimes you have to shove your new family down your family of origins throat and you have to draw a line and insist at the very least on respectful treatment for the person that you have chosen to form this new family with, to partner with. If your boyfriend isn't doing any of that because he's at a disadvantage, because his family has leverage over him, because they employ him, Maybe he doesn't deserve to be your boyfriend. Maybe you need to dream a separate dream with a different life and perhaps a different future life partner and not settle for someone who doesn't advocate for you, doesn't prioritize you in this conflict with his family of origin. But if he does prioritize you, if he is working on his family, it can take some time. And sometimes family only come around when they realize in the end that their resistance is making a difference, when they realize resistance is futile. There are lots of families out there who initially rejected their children's partners because their children's partners were of the wrong race, were of the wrong sex, were not cis, hadn't gone to the right schools, didn't have the right kind of job or career. The path you're walking right now with your boyfriend, if indeed he does advocate for you with his family, is a path that many, many, many other people have walked, including other trans people. And sometimes that path takes you away from the family of origin and There's no reconciliation ever, but often there is a reconciliation once the family of origin gives the fuck up, which they sometimes don't do until they realize that they're going to be walked away from, that their adult child is going to use, as I like to say, the only leverage they have over their family of origin, which is their presence, 
And your boyfriend, hopefully one day, will be independent of his parents and be able to say, look, you accept the person I'm with or I'm out. I'm gone. You're not going to see me anymore. And then maybe they come around. But there's a possibility they'll never come around. Then you need to ask yourself whether you want to be in a relationship with someone whose parents fucking hate you. That's a choice you get to make for yourself. Hey, Dan, 40-year-old male, Bay Area. Seven years ago, I had a beautiful romance. It lasted two weeks at a conference. After that, I was a pen pal with this woman for a number of years, helped her through a hard time. She fell in love with me. Yes, I did lead her on in some ways via pen pal. Met up only once a couple years later, had a beautiful romantic weekend. Then that was it. Stayed pen pals. She became obsessed. I've had other girlfriends since then told her to leave me alone and she wouldn't ever leave me alone. She is gorgeous. And sure, there was a fantasy of me being with her. I have fed into that fantasy. That saying, I have mostly moved on with my life. I now am in a relationship for three years and thinking about proposing to my now girlfriend, who is absolutely wonderful. We have a beautiful community. And we've blocked this person from all of our social media. However, she somehow infiltrates from time here and there. New pictures have come out of me and my girlfriend online. And again, I receive hundreds of messages in another email from another email. That's actually her. And whenever this happens, it does twist me up. I question everything uh, because this person laid out quite a beautiful fantasy and loves me, loves me, loves me, loves me, loves me. I want to put it aside. I don't know what I need to do. Shamanic help, something in order to just stay and turn the page and have this not affect me and my relationship. I feel like it's a psychic energy. It's really intense, the things she writes. For some reason, I like to read them, the messages. It fulfills some type of kingly fantasy I have of some sort that she paints. However, it is destructive in my life. She's held on to this day in and day out, although has never come and seen me, never come and shown her face. It's been five years. But for some reason, it still is a bump in my life. Uh, again, I have a wonderful girlfriend. I want to make the next steps in life. I'm already 40. Got a wonderful community. Any advice on how to stop feeding this monster by basically reading the emails or anything? I haven't responded in two and a half years to any email or call. Dude, you don't need a shaman. You need a shrink. Talk about why you keep reading these emails. Something about the fantasy that this woman spins uh, appeals to you you know we talked earlier we've talked on other shows about the road you didn't take and fantasizing about the person you could have been with and some part of you fantasizes about being with this person even though this person has demonstrated to you again and again and again on a daily basis that she's not well this obsession with you is unhealthy, this road that she didn't take or didn't get to take because you didn't want to take it with her, that she can't get past is a sign that she is not right in the head, that she has some sort of mental problem, this obsession with you. And you say you're feeding it. You're only feeding yourself. You're reading these emails. And obviously it keeps the dream of some alternate life, not with this person who's not well, but with 
the shell of this person. You say that she was very beautiful, and I'm sure that's a big part of why you fantasize still about being with her. But you're talking about being with the exterior, the shell. What's inside that person would disqualify them from long-term relationship of any sort because she ain't well. She ain't right in the fucking head. And you need to go talk to a shrink about why you feel compelled to read these emails, which are harming you. And preventing you, I think, from taking that next step with the wonderful person you're with now, who, based on what you said, sounds like she was on the receiving end of some emails and phone calls from this person as well. This person is a danger to you, perhaps physically, certainly psychologically, and is impeding your emotional and marital progress. Go talk to a shrink. Maybe a little cognitive behavioral therapy can help you learn how to delete these emails without reading them. And now your tweets. How do your tweets? At Fake Dan Savage, it's not narcissistic for women to think they can fix a guy with a suitable application of pussy, an observation I frequently made on this show. It's just plain old internalized sexism with a dollop of Christianity. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. Also a factor, no doubt. The patriarchy, internalized sexism, and Christianity can never be factored out of any conversations about sex and sexuality. Good point. J. Marshall Freeman tweets, at Fake Dan Savage, are the tech-savvy at-risk youth who tech your show the same tech-savvy at-risk youth as 12 years ago? Or is it more of a rotating menudo situation that they age out of? It's not a menudo situation. It's more of a Logan's Run kind of situation. Those of you who don't get the reference are going to want to watch that movie. Michael York, so young, so hot. And it was before he became a right-wing lunatic. Logan's Run. Enjoy. And finally, Sarah Cortezney tweets, Today's sex and gender genes class at Northern Essex was built almost entirely around episodes of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you, Dan, for making my students question everything they think they know about human sexuality. You are welcome, and thank you for including the Savage Lovecast and all of my callers and guests in your class. We're all happy that we could make a contribution. And now your response calls. Hi, I'm calling with a comment on episode 648 to the woman who was angry about her boyfriend not introducing him to her kids. I think he's still with his wife. I think he's cheating on her, and he's been lying to her this whole time. And I'm kind of surprised Dan didn't uh, mention that potential scenario. Anyway, DTMFA. Just a comment about the last episode. A woman called in about a video game in which the it was like a first person rapist video game and one thing that I wanted to add was that like yes there's no data that correlates a violent video game or violent pornography with acts of violence in the three-dimensional world however it does correlate with perpetuating rape culture and rape culture isn't necessarily an act of violence but it is a more subtle uh, pervasive mentality throughout the culture and it's video games like this perpetuate that and um, that's one of the reasons why it should not be disseminated en masse and I'm really glad to hear it was taken down from the platform. Hi Dan, I was just listening to the caller response on today's episode and it was the housekeeper who was talking about how single men in their 20s and 30s are really dirty and gross and she sees this so often that she feels that it's um how they're socialized rather than just an individual quirk 
I totally agree with that. But she did make the comment that their moms aren't teaching them these life skills for cleaning and being responsible. And I take issue with that because, you know, who else needs to be teaching them those skills? Their dads. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. My Dirty Little Porn Film Festival Hump is in New York City and Chicago this week. Find tickets at humpfilmfest.com. And we're getting closer to the premiere of our new film festival, Spliff. A film festival made by stoners for stoners. It is coming to Denver next week, to Portland and Seattle for the 420 weekend, and to San Francisco on May 3rd and 4th. Head to splitfilmfest.com for a trippy trailer and to order your tickets. And one more bit of business, Savage Love Live will be in Seattle on May 11th, where I'll be answering your burning questions live on stage at The Egyptian with a couple of great guests. Head over to savagelovecast.com and click on events to get tickets to that upcoming live show and other upcoming live shows all around the country. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Caitlin Bailey on Twitter. She spells it K-A-Y-T-L-I-N-B-A-I-L-E-Y. Podcast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy, ageless, immortal youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for